the Buddha had more recommendations for inside meditation methods concerned with the body. The section on mindfulness on the body is the largest of any of the mindfulness sections. So you can see how much importance he gave that aspect. And we have already done the five daily recollections which concern decay, disease and death. And in the mindfulness section on the body, death is the one that is addressed in very detailed analysis. Now sometimes people who have not heard much about the Buddha's teaching get the idea that that is designed to give people dukkha, give people unhappiness. It's just the opposite. Death awaits us all. And if we come to terms with it ahead of time, it doesn't present a tragedy. It just presents the natural flow of all that has been born that must die. There's just no way out. And while we intellectually agree to that, because we have no other choice except to agree to that, nobody's given us a choice that we could say, oh, well, no, you know, I don't believe that. We have to. Our whole inner being revolts usually against our own personal death and the uh, opportunities for dying are manifold constant uh, constant opportunities for having accidents and for getting sick and uh, not recovering and so forth but we consider that not only unfair to ourselves that such a thing should ever happen to us, we try to forget it. We try not to give it any thought. And the Buddha said just the opposite will make us happy, remembering it every single day. They're called the five daily recollections, every single day. And if one should have a sickness that eventually uh, leads to death, because it has already been found in the body and everybody has something but we don't usually find it then that could be considered to be, be a great benefit because it will remind us as a reminder there so that we don't forget and he gave a number of ways of remembering it besides this daily recollection They're called the, well, we don't have these charnel places nowadays, what shall we call it, cemetery, cemetery meditations. We do have cemeteries. And uh, then the literal translation is called the charnel ground, because that's where people get um, um, burned, which is still done, of course, in the East, but we do it in these very sanitary surroundings where we don't even see it 
um, when there's a cremation going on, it's all you know, hidden from us. But even in Sri Lanka, um, you can see it by the roadside anytime you want to. And of course in India, you can go and see it anywhere. And when you see it, it's very interesting. And especially when you relate it to yourself. Now here in Australia, we don't have a chance to see it. It's, um, the crematorium is, uh, everything is hidden away and you can't have a look. But everybody's got enough imagination to think about it and kind of portray it to oneself what it would be like. So there are several ways that the Buddha um, recommended. Now the first way, he said, to think of oneself just having died and possibly even having the enough imagination to see the cause of it. Maybe there's something that we can are especially afraid of. Some people are very afraid of drowning. Some people are very afraid of choking. Some people are very afraid of being underground. Some people are afraid of heights. Some people are afraid of tigers. Some people are afraid of poisonous snakes or poisonous spiders. Anything will do, whatever it may be. Whatever it is. Take that one and let it be the cause of death in meditation. And if the mind balks at it and says, uh uh, this is silly, I don't want to do that, then you can rest assured that's what you'll have to do. That's exactly what you're scared of. Because we only hit the bullseye when there's a bullseye to be hit. If there's nothing there, why should we be scared? Whenever we resist the truth, you can be quite sure that is the truth. It's hitting right in the middle. So if you happen to be afraid of poisonous snakes or poisonous spiders, or whatever it may be, so let's just take that as an example. It may not be what you're afraid of at all. Um, in your meditation, use some time to have a poisonous snake bite you and no help for it, you die from it. And imagine how it would be. I'm sure you have enough imagination for that. Or if you can't stand tigers for some reason, well, have a tiger jump on you and scratch your eyes out and all the rest of it. And if fear arises, then you know. And then you've done it properly. If no fear arises, you're playing games. Everybody is scared of having a tiger scratch their eyes out. And if one doesn't feel that fear at that moment, one isn't doing it properly. But if the fear arises, then it's done properly. And it can be anything, whatever it is that you particularly think is very unpleasant as a death. I mean, everybody wants to fall asleep and never wake up again. I mean, that's obvious. 
We all like that, you know. So that's neither unpleasant nor has it any connotation of fear. We don't know anything about it, so we just fall asleep and wonderful, you know, wake up in the heavenly realms or somewhere. But not everybody is that fortunate. And besides, it doesn't change anything. It just goes around and around and around and over and over again. So if you, one does it properly and the fear does arise, the first time you do it, you probably say, ah, oh, that's silly, I won't do this, and go back to the breath. All right. Then you try it again. And maybe the next time the mind has already understood that one has to go through that fear one day and come out the other end. Because if one doesn't, one's going to be afraid of death until it actually happens. Now, obviously, we may not be killed by a tiger. There are very few tigers in Australia, as far as I know. We could be killed by a poisonous snake, but that too is unlikely. But something's going to kill us. That's for sure. So, whatever it's going to be, now is the time to get over the fear. And why? Because once we get over the fear of death, we have conquered most fears. Not all, because for that we have to do a little more. But then there's no fearfulness left that we can become easily aware of. Once having conquered that one, we have done an enormous step towards freedom. The teaching of the Buddha is freedom. Freedom from all dependency. And if we are afraid of death, we're depending on life. And we can't have it. It's very limited. We're constantly depending on that which we can't have anyway a very limited performance that we have here the guest performance and we're not even permanently engaged so we might as well come to terms with that now now when everything is fine and all we have to do when we're deadly scared is open our eyes and say oh well this is very silly and then start all over again because when it really happens there's nothing we can do about opening our eyes and saying, oh, this is silly. But <laughs> 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 it's happening. <laughs> so, now is the time to do it. There is no valid spiritual teaching that doesn't say the same thing. It's to be found everywhere. If you go into churches of the Middle Ages which you can't find here but you can find in Europe galore you find skulls everywhere on the walls and skeletons uh, not real ones plaster ones I haven't seen a real one but plaster ones are everywhere and Jesus said those who die to themselves will have eternal life now 
we have to understand what it means. The first step, this isn't the whole thing yet, but the first step is not to be afraid of physical death. Now, obviously, I've heard it so often, I'm going to preempt that too. People say, oh, I'm not afraid of dying. It's all right. I just don't want my loved ones to die. Check it out. If we're afraid of anybody's death, we're particularly afraid of our own. Yes, if we could have a guarantee that without any pain and without any sickness, at the time that when we are ready for it, when we agree to it, we could lie down, fall asleep, and wake up in a sort of, um, well, it doesn't have to be paradise, but something close to it anyway, we wouldn't mind at all. But who's got that guarantee? Nobody. We're hoping, we're wishing. But even that is foolishness because it is wanting something. And behind that wanting is the uncertainty of not getting it. And that uncertainty alone already creates anxiety, even if we're not afraid of it. It's an underlying anxiety. This underlying anxiety is, by the way, the fear that is a human condition. Now, not everybody is immediately deadly afraid of certain things, but underlying anxiety, that is our existential fear because we haven't come to terms with the fact that we are transient and fleeting. Not only are we transient and fleeting, we aren't at all what we think we are. So there is an underlying disquiet. And that disquiet, even though we might deny it for ourselves, is the underlying tone of the whole of human society. Sometimes one can walk into a very old cathedral in Europe or into a meditation hall or meditation center and people will say, gee, it's nice and peaceful here. It's quite different. There's nothing peaceful anywhere to be found where human society gets together. It's that underlying disquiet. Because we all know it, we don't want to admit it, but we're here and facing death. So, this is a very important insight meditation practice and should be practiced at least once a day. And if you can do it quickly, by all means. If it takes a long time, by all means. If you think it's all right, it's okay for this time to eat me up, so what? You can be sure you haven't done it right. Do it again. And see yourself in bits and pieces. And then see what you think of that. Now the Buddha gave many other um, ideas about doing that. Seeing oneself dead one day. Now if you've never seen a corpse that has become one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight days old, which of course doesn't happen in our society, people don't show you those things, it may be a little difficult to imagine that. But what happens is, and the Buddha says, explains how it is, and one should definitely 
have a good look at that, how it affects oneself. The body becomes bloated, discolored, and if it isn't buried or cremated, the maggots start eating it. But that's not somebody else, that's oneself, the one we think is me. Only when we go through that as an actual inner real experience, because we can't have it as an outer experience by the time we're being eaten up by maggots, it's impossible to experience that because we can't do it anymore, so we have to do it now. Then we have an inkling of what our impermanence really means. And also the intoxication with the body and the identification with the body may be reduced. It won't disappear. It will be reduced. It only disappears with complete insight. But all of this are steps on the way. And then, so first, bloated, discolored, eaten by maggots. Then, the, the flesh hanging on the skeleton and then, because of time, the flesh being completely disintegrated and only a skeleton. And then the skeleton getting bleached and then in bits and pieces, just bones lying about. So all these different possibilities now, again, in Asia, this is very easy. You can go and see it anywhere. Here it's very difficult. You can't get there unless you have um, admission to a mortuary. And even there, it's um, usually corpses get painted so they look better. And I mean, it's, uh, we try to hide, even when people are already dead, we try to hide the fact that the body is disintegrating and becoming less and less appetizing. We also have the strange idea that this body, which is me, called me, is very appetizing when it's still alive. It's, um, as long as it isn't very sick, it's something which is desirable. And for that, the Buddha had another antidote. He had the antidote, which is called, in technical terms, the 32 parts of the body. And actually, the way it was done traditionally was to recite the 32 parts of the body and try and find and become aware of each of the parts that one is reciting. However, that means you have to learn them by heart in a certain order, which is totally unnecessary. I um, have a variation on that, which is a little more modern and easier to handle, but with the same effect. Namely, and this is a second type of insight method, imagine you have a zipper in front of your body and you open that zipper and you start taking out all the bits and pieces that are in there 
Now, everybody knows enough, even without having studied anatomy, what's inside a body. doesn't matter if you miss a few bits and pieces. really doesn't matter at all. And to do it properly is to visualize what the piece looks like. Let's say the lungs. Usually everybody has seen pictures of it. And then to take it with your hands, what it feels like, and then put it in front of you. And get the whole kit and caboodle out. The lungs and the kidneys and the gallbladder and the heart and the intestines and the blood and the um, bile and whatever you can find. Take it all out and put it in front. Take the head apart too and then put the hair down, the teeth, the nails. And then you see that without, with all that out, the skin shrivels. There's nothing to hold the skin up. So since it doesn't look nice anymore, you take that too and put it there. Shriveled bit of skin. And then there's a skeleton sitting there. So you take that too. Take all its bits and pieces and put it in a nice little heap. And if you don't like tidiness, put it just all over the place. doesn't matter. And then look at all that and say, now which one am I? Where is the me in all this? And since it is neither appetizing nor pretty, nor does it have any resemblance to a person, the answer is obviously, no, not in there. Must have got lost on the way somewhere. Then they take the whole stuff and put it nicely back in. It doesn't matter in which order, but of course the skeleton first. And then the rest of the stuff. And then zip it up again. And there's me again. Magic, isn't it? Take it all out, put it there, nobody there. Put it back in, me sits here again. As big and solid as it ever was. Buddha compared that to a cart. He says, first, when we have, we uh, have wheels, we have an axle, we have a, um, a brake, we have a bottom, we have the side, uh, um, the wooden pieces to make the sides. And all these things are separate and have their names. But when we stick them together, put the wheels and the bottom and the axle and all that together, then all of a sudden it's called cart. The same with us. Put all these bits and pieces together and all of a sudden it's called me. Now if we take them apart, don't call it me. Now we can do even better today. We can put spare parts in here. And before we put them in, they're in a glass bottle with formaldehyde. And they're certainly not called me. But the minute we stick them in there, then it's me. We've got to find out where does this me sit in this body. And then, of course, the mind says, well, all right, it's not me. So, where is it? That is in one of the very impressive ways of trying to inquire that which is the essence of the teaching 
the emptiness of all phenomena. Anatta in this tradition, sunyata in the Mayana tradition, void, whatever. This is how we can get at it. We won't get an answer, but at least we've got a question, which is far more than most people have. Most people don't even have a question. They just take it for granted, this is me. It's got to be, because it isn't you, so it's got to be me. They don't even know that there's another choice. So at least we have that question. And with that, we have a mind which does not take things for granted, a mind which has the ability to try and go into profounder depth than the ordinary, everyday mentality that we need for our business and for our obligations. If we really want to find out, we have to do it practical. We have to do it on an experiential level. Because if we read a Buddhist book, and most of them have that in them, and we read about the anatta, the non, not I, the corelessness, and it's well explained, the mind might say, ah yes, that's right, that's interesting, no me, just body and mind, and nothing changes. It's all the same as before. We can intellectually agree to anything and we can also disagree to anything. The mind is a magician. It can do anything. We learned this in school. I don't know if you did. But we learned in school to debate the same question from both sides. We were given a topic and two kids had to debate that topic. One for and one against. And then you had to change sides. And you became the one that was for and the other one was against. And it was just as easy. It made no difference. So we can agree or disagree on anything. But when we've actually experienced it, then we know. And then nobody can argue us out of it. Even if the other person thinks it doesn't not correct, it's untrue, it doesn't matter. We've experienced it. It's that old simile of biting into the mango and the only way to find out what it tastes like. So this is one way of experiencing one's own death, which I first talked about, without having to actually die. Because once we are dying, we are on our deathbed and haven't ever done anything about this. It would be mighty difficult to come to terms with it at the last moment. If one has time, yes, but that too we don't know. But now we have time. And if we can come to terms with it without any fear, we have not only gained the time for death to be fearless, we have gained something far more than that. If there is actually no fear of dying, we can then go further and have no more fear for the ego. That's one of the great problems that the whole world suffers from.
So it's the first step is the fear of dying. And the second thing that we can do is this other method which I've talked about now, the one where we take ourselves apart and look for me. Now, there are very few people, there are some, but few, who will not agree to a statement that we're not the body, intellectually. Every time you look in the mirror, who's, who's in the mirror? It's always me, isn't it? So this is our first approach to seeing ourselves a little differently. To seeing ourselves consisting of lots of bits and pieces. None of them extremely beautiful. None of them ugly. But certainly nothing that would that scream saying, look at me. None of them do that. They just are parts of a body. If you do it carefully, you can find lots of bits and pieces. You can take yourself apart from... You can start the zipper up here, of course. You don't have to start here. You start up here and go all the way down. And find as many bits and pieces as you can think of. And don't agree with me. Do it. It makes all the difference. If the mind just now says, oh, this is silly, I know I'm not the body, do it. It makes all the difference. Knowing I'm not the body, well, what am I? One of the great sages in southern India, died in the 1950s, Ramana Maharshi, taught only that, who am I? That's our whole teaching. I mean, books full of it. But who am I? This is one of the ways of attacking that problem. Because we can have name, we can we identify with our name, we identify with our sex, we identify with our age, with our looks, which we either approve of or not. We identify with our belongings, with our uh, dear ones, with our family, we identify with all the things that are external to us. Does it really tell us who we are? Let's say we are a mother and the child dies. And then what? Are we still a mother? So we lost that identification. So how can we identify with the external? We have to find out what's internal. Who am I really? And name, profession, belonging and people, none of that is internal to us. We can change our name dozens of times in one lifetime if we want to. I think I've changed my name one, two, three, I think four times. Very simple. Nothing to it. So which one am I? I can remember those other names too. So am I four people? 
So this is a this is the quest, the quest for absolute truth, and we can only manifest the quest if we do it. It's an experiential meditative process and in this experiential meditative process we may not even get the answer that we asked but we may get other answers if we find fear we have found truth everybody's afraid we give it different names some people say well all I'm afraid of is um, that I might not have sufficient funds for my old age. Okay. Another person says, well, I'm not afraid of that at all. I'm just afraid of being lonely. Another person says, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm just afraid of a lot of pain. It's all the same fear. It's all one and the same. There's no difference. It's all one and the same. So check out the fear and see which one comes up. See which one comes up because that shows us which direction our fear goes. It always goes in the same direction. The fear of annihilation. Because the me, the ego, wants to be. Annihilation, of which death is, of course, a very strong manifestation. Notwithstanding the fact that we may believe in reincarnation. But if we believe in reincarnation, it probably has also the connotation, I saw right to die, I'll be back again. Never again. It's always somebody else. The only thing that gets reborn is karma. Do you remember the last time around? Do you remember name, sex, place of residence? Profession, money, nothing. Gone. Totally gone. Same thing next time. This one will be gone. Next time, somebody. But no more me. So, we are afraid of this annihilation. And the reason we are afraid of the annihilation is because we've got the wrong idea about me. When that has been overcome we realize that annihilation is not even taking place because there's nobody there to be annihilated but we've got to approach it somehow so first we've got to find out who is this that sits there and then what do I think about my own death these are two extremely insightful ways of using the meditative process now if the mind has become calm that's the time to do it there are two times to do it one time it's the time when the mind has become calm at the end of calm meditation the mind can really see these things without getting upset about it because when the mind has true calm there's very little that can, can upset it it can see those things with equanimity. The other time to do it is when the mind doesn't want to become calm. We've got to do something. It's no use being 
uh, worried about not having any concentration so we might as well use something that will produce calm now interestingly enough this that produces insight or can produce insight I should say will also produce calm it's a very interesting phenomena that for instance taking oneself apart into one's bits and pieces and doing it really with a little bit of oomph behind it while feeling it, seeing it and not just saying oh yes I've got all those pieces well so what that's not good enough one does it with a um, real intention the mind really understands that there's nothing to worry about these bits and pieces are not important enough and there can be so much interest aroused in this process of taking it out that the mind can become calm it happens quite often so the insight which arises is one part and the calm which arises from that is the other possibility the best way to do insight meditation is after the mind has become calm having the calm meditation first and then doing insight meditation the different ways of seeing oneself are something that people who don't meditate or I should say people who don't hear about the Buddha's teachings never one should never say never hardly ever do it's very rare that a person would look at their the aspect of themselves of the bits and pieces that we consist of and it's probably even rarer that a person would try to visualize their own death most people never have that intention because they think it is something unpleasant so why should it be unpleasant it's a law of nature why is a law of nature unpleasant this is one of the problems that the whole of humanity is faced with we don't like the laws of nature so we like to change them and what do we do in the process not only do we pollute the whole uh, environment and make a mess of it and let the forest die no we pollute our own minds also because we don't like it the way it is we want it different well if we would agree to the way it is instead of wanting it different we would save ourselves an awful lot of trouble we just accept it the way it is we're very impermanent we consist of a whole lot of bits and pieces which are neither beautiful nor are they ugly they just are and they usually fit together and work for a while perfectly and then they start packing up and one has to do something about them and in the end the whole thing packs up and then when the whole thing packs up then there is immediate and very fast decay which looks rather unpleasant because the decay which then arises also smells very bad so why should we like to change that it's impossible to change it that's the way it is and that we don't like it why don't we like it because we only like that which gives us a pleasant 
feeling. We want pleasant feelings from our sense contacts. And if we see something ugly, which a, a bloated, discolored, maggot-ridden body certainly is, if we see that, we don't get a pleasant feeling from it. So we don't want it. But that it's a law of nature. We forget. That's the way it is. These are our two cravings which keep us on the run. One is the craving for existence, we don't want to die. And the other one is a craving for sensual gratification. We don't want unpleasant sense contacts. And with those two, this is the way the Buddha explained it, with those two, we have constant reaction to whatever happens to us. And also, of course, we have that continuation in the realm of birth and death, which we ourselves can only experience from day to day, from moment to moment. It's useless to think about last life, next life. We don't know last life. We will never know next life impossible to know the future so we experience day to day moment to moment and we react to it because very often in an uh, unsatisfactory manner because it neither does it comply with our wish for constant sensual gratification nor does it comply with our wish for our craving for existence because our ego existence is very often put into question when we don't get appreciation, when we don't get love, when we don't get praise, when we don't uh, have those things that we want, that the ego support is not there, then our craving for existence, which is all based on this ego illusion, does not get support system. And therefore we need to have a look at the opposite because we always want that, this, this side of it. And have, wanting this side, that's all very well, but we can't get it. We cannot have constant sensual gratification and we cannot have constant existence because we will definitely not exist. So there is this um, dichotomy of our wishes and that which is possible. And therefore, these, both of these meditation uh, processes, meditation methods, may help us. They may. There's no guarantee that they will. Now, that's enough for one horrible discourse. <laughs> <laughs> You can ask some questions. <laughs> all right. Yes. No, I, I, I will, though. 
I mean, not tonight, but, but I will tomorrow. So would you persevere with that and start looking if, if, the, if the conclusion you came to at the end was that you were the body and you decided that you were the mind? Then you start, up, start with the mind. And you start looking to see whether you were the mind. Yes. Yeah. And I'll explain tomorrow how to do that. Because you can take that apart too. <laughs> Yes, but I mean, if it happens before I explain it, by all means, in- investigate it yourself. <laughs> Don't wait. <laughs> investigate which part of the mind you are. <laughs> it, it's very fascinating. It's, uh, in the end, you know, there's really nothing left. And uh, that's great. Because then, when nothing is left, everything is worth doing. Nothing is worth getting upset about. So it, it you know, everything becomes um, just. I'm, I've almost wanted to see it's almost like everything becomes entertainment. <laughs> how how far should you persist with fear? Uh, is it that I think? This has to be individual with your, your strength. But if you've got a real, if you know the start up with, for example, I think I know mine, um, because my father and my brother are both had heart attacks, I have a very great fear of that, and I can even produce the type of pain that a heart attack has. So, what, how long do you sustain that? And when you <laughs> and when you produce that that heart attack pain, what happens? Well, I've had it twice before during meditation when I break up in cold sweat and go through all the symptoms of having a heart attack. But that was involuntary. It arose with fear. The fear and that pain uh, have arisen at the same time. I guess still the pain actually from something that I really do have this thing, uh, I'm not quite sure what it is, it's called ASD, and apparently it's a very similar pain to a heart attack and it can come through its gesture. And I do get that pain, and I often have the fear that it is a heart attack. Mm. Okay, well, what you, what you need to do in, in the meditation you said you got it in meditation. You got the fear and the pain in meditation. How? Why? I'm not quite sure why. I, I had um, the pain arose during meditation, and then the fear arose immediately. Right, right. But the pain arose that was, well, let's say it was an accidental that it arose. Or yes. Was. Okay. Okay. I, I certainly didn't Yes, yes. Um, so now what you do is you sit down, do your calm meditation first, and at the end you remember with clarity what it feels like to have that pain. You don't have to arouse that pain. You just remember with clarity what it's like. And you remember also with clarity what it's like to be afraid of that pain because that fear is there to die from it. Okay. And now, go through the fear and die from it. <laughs> Open your eyes and finish. If, it, if it's, uh, it's not necessary to have that pain. But it's certainly necessary to have the fear. Certainly. 
because if we don't have that fear arise we can't go through the fear so go through the fear and be dead from this imaginary heart attack and just see what it's like and of course dead as you're dead you've got to realize now what does this entail they're going to put me in the ground finished so go through with the whole thing and once having gone through it one usually doesn't have to do it again having gone through the fear to the actual finish of the whole business not necessary to do it again but usually one needs at least two or three starts maybe more but most people need two or three starts before they can go through it very worthwhile and especially now that you know already this fear extremely even more worthwhile because you see this is also something that I would like to emphasize okay you are isolating the fear not just you everybody right you're isolating and saying okay I know what I'm afraid of I'm afraid of a heart attack because they died from it in other words I don't want to die from this heart attack I don't want to die so they're isolating it because this is the um, the exact thing you're afraid of but in reality this fear spreads into everything because I mean there are so many other possibilities of dying physically and there are so many possibilities of dying emotionally they are innumerable so our fear of anything which is always a fear of death has all that other, other fears hanging around it I don't want to die so I don't want to um, be um, put down I don't want to be disregarded I don't want to be th- uh, badly thought of these are all small deaths and the whole thing hangs together because if there's no fear of death so what we're here on borrowed time all of us and when we know we're here on borrowed time you know what that brings with it more enjoyment because that's always something um, that is misunderstood when one really knows that one is here on borrowed time one has that feeling of isn't it nice I saw another sunset or isn't it wonderful I saw the kids playing with each other people who think they're here forever never even look at the kids playing or don't say never hardly ever (laughs) so when one realizes that this fear is totally useless because it's going to happen anyway and we don't have to be afraid of it because it's a natural happening it's a natural flow and we can flow with it remember the pain that you can completely disregard when you become concentrated on something else when the mind becomes light the body becomes light the same thing with the fear of death exactly the same thing and one's got to finally do it one day if one wants to have the benefit of it before one dies and then living on borrowed time it's like living on borrowed money from the bank you don't have to earn anything they give you the money it's the same thing it's really nice 
<laughs> so try that out, okay? All right, anything else? Anybody else know what they're particularly afraid of? What kind of thing? It's interesting because it's very common. Suffocation. What were you going to say? Um, coffins. I tried. Sorry? A coffin. A ah, coffin. Claustrophobia. That's the same thing. That's the same thing. Yeah. Being in the coffin, having the thing shut, and maybe not being totally dead. That type of thing, yeah. I got through that feeling once, and then decided to go into the first thing, let it Never address it again. No. Mm-hmm. Address it again. Mm-hmm. See whether you've actually gone through it. Whether it's perfectly alright to be in this coffin. You know, of course it's not alright to be in there while you're alive but whether it's okay to be in there and shut and everything finished you know it's a, this is a, a very common one the one with the suffocation thing yeah, I, I wonder why that is I think, I believe it is that the reason for that being so common is because we even though we don't address it we subconsciously all realize that we are totally dependent on air totally I mean, nobody likes to be even in a stuffy room. You know, so in Germany, it goes so far that people open all the windows when it's snowing outside. I'm always shaking in this, this, this cold. <laughs> so uh, I think this is a most common thing. So go through with it. Very interesting. And it's, um, you know, it ha- it, like for instance, earthquakes produce that, where houses fall down on people, that type of thing. Okay, make it happen. You go through it. Once having gone through it, now you'll have to check whether you've actually gone through it. Do it again. Let's see. And if the mind says, uh-uh, I don't want to, okay, stop, try another time. Because when the mind doesn't want to, it just doesn't want to. Okay? So, we have lots of fun tomorrow with that. (laughs) Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Imagine yourself to be an empty vessel in body and mind and fill that empty vessel with peace, 
and let this peacefulness go through your whole body enter your mind taking up every nook and cranny so that you feel yourself to be peace and then surround yourself with a golden mantle which consists of love and feel yourself completely embedded in it soft and yielding warm and protective And now pour the peace that is filling you into the person nearest you. And then take that golden mantle of love and surround that person with it. And now pour peace into everyone here. Use yourself as this vessel that contains only peace and pour it all out into everyone here. And then make the golden mantle large enough to surround everyone with warmth, with care, protective. Secure.
and now pour the peace into your parents. and surround them with the golden mantle of love. Now pour the peace into those who are nearest and dearest to you. Fill them with it as your gift to them. Embrace them with your love. Protective and caring, warm and secure. Now pour the peace that is within you into all your good friends. Let them share in it. Let them have part in it. And surround them with a golden mantle of love. Shining and clear, warm and protective.
Think of all the people who are part of your life that you see here and there, that you meet, that you speak to or not, who come into your life. Share with them. Pour peace into their hearts. and give them your love. If there's anyone in your life whom you find difficult or towards whom you're quite indifferent, share your peace with that person. Embrace him or her with your love. Let there be no difference between your love for different people. Now start pouring out peace to people near and far. The more of it there is in your heart, the more you can give. Let it go far and wide, wherever you think it is needed and wanted. Touch people's heart. With the peace you're sharing with them, with the love you're extending to them. Here and across the whole country and across the oceans. surrounding the whole globe and all its inhabitants. Peace and love from your heart.
and put your attention back on yourself. Feel yourself filled with peace. and embraced and surrounded by love. Fully at ease. completely secure. May all beings have love and peace in their hearts.